Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. During this 43rd Ontario election campaign, we're podcasting every weekday. Today on the pod, they're off. The writs have been drawn up and Election 43 is underway. We'll do some Civics 101 on election calling. We'll compare opposition party transit plans. We'll consider how to get more nurses on duty. And a look at what Get It Done means for the Tories. It's Wednesday, May the 4th, 2022, so let's get to it. Hey there, partner. You drop any writs today? Uh, as I am not the Queen of Canada's representative in Ontario, uh, I neither dropped nor drew up nor issued uh, any writs, uh, though, of course, uh, the Lieutenant Governor uh, Elizabeth Dadswell did uh, issue the writs of election today for Ontario's 124 ridings. I'm very happy to hear you put it that way, because, of course, every time an election is called in Canada, every journalist who doesn't know any better, every political person who doesn't know any better, they all say, we're going to drop the writs and away we go. And of course, we don't drop any writs. In fact, David Onley, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, sent me an email yesterday, John Michael, assuring me he has never in his life, not during the seven years he was Lieutenant Governor, never once did he drop a writ. <laughs> he always drew them up. And of course, the writs are, well, maybe you should explain. Tell people what the writs are so that they understand that you don't drop them, you draw them up. So formally speaking, you know, there's not one election in Ontario. There are in this election, there will be 124 elections for each of the, uh, one for each rather, of the ridings uh, across the province. And so each riding has a writ of election, a piece of paper uh, that is the uh, lieutenant governor and the, the chief electoral officer, uh, you know, uh, calling the election for that riding. Uh, and so uh, this morning on uh, Wednesday, May 4th, uh, the lieutenant governor and the chief electoral officer, uh, Greg Asenza, uh, issued the writs, uh, which uh, start the process uh, of uh, holding the election. Uh, once the, the writs are issued, it starts all of the machinery of Elections Ontario rolling and, uh, you know, sets when nominees have to be named, when the ballots have to be finalized, when early voting will start. And of course, uh, it sets the uh, election date of June 2nd, uh, you know, when people will, uh, the, the last opportunity, rather, people will have to go to the polls. You know what else it does? Uh, what have I forgotten? <laughs> now, this is just in. This just in. It also requires all Provincial Affairs podcasts to get new theme music during the writ period, <laughs> which we have done. Do you like our fancy new music? Uh, I do. You know, a, a nice uh, zingy little tone there. I like that. <laughs> well, okay. Without further ado, let's get into the state of play. Uh, obviously, as I love to remind people, polls are a great indication of what people thought yesterday. They do not tell you what people will do on June the 2nd. Given that proviso, what's the state of play today? Uh, we have two polls uh, out today, at least as, as we are recording this. There might be more coming later in the evening. Uh, the first is from Ipsos. Uh, it was conducted for Global News. Uh, it shows the Tories well ahead with 39% of decided voters. The Liberals and NDP uh, basically tied for second. The Liberals with 26%, the NDP with 25%, uh, and the Green Party uh, at 6%. Uh, the second poll, uh, this one uh, conducted uh, by Nanos for CTV, uh, has the 
Liberals doing slightly better. Uh, you have 37% for the Tories, 30% for the Liberals. The NDP uh, further back in third place with 23%, and the Greens with 4%. And uh, let me just add Erin Kelly from Advanced Symbolics, Inc., because I know she's going to be on the agenda tonight. And even though the second place liberals and third place New Democrats in these other polls are relatively close together, uh, Erin Kelly's actually still got the NDP in second place, the liberals at a close third. But I think the bottom line is the opposition to Ford vote is very split between those two other parties. And, um, well, shall we say it? If you're a progressive conservative, you kind of got to like where you're sitting right now, right? Right. I mean, they are uh, reasonably far ahead of both of uh, the opposition, uh, both of the, the largest of the opposition parties, I should say. I would add, though, that if that Nanos poll is right, they don't have a lot of breathing room. Uh, you know, a, a seven-point margin in, you know, in a U.S. election, a seven-point margin is a blowout, right? Where it's yeah. just two parties competing. Uh, with 37% to 30%, the Tories probably still get a majority, but, you know, it's, it's tighter than they would like, you know, to, to be you know, a, a lot more comfortable, they would really be hoping that that Ipsos poll with like the 12 point lead, the 13 point lead, that's the one they really hope is correct. Sure. Now, let's spend a bit of time here going through some of the announcements. And so, of course, all the parties are making announcements every day during the course of this campaign. And even though you and I are speaking here on the first full official day of the campaign, uh, I, I'd say the, the most intriguing a policy pronouncement that's been made so far uh, was a couple of days ago, so before the writs were drawn up, and that was the liberal plan, uh, which uh, very much evokes something having to do with beer. But this is not beer. This is buck a ride, not buck a beer. And uh, well, the liberals think they've got a winner here. What do they say? Uh, Stephen Del Duca announced that if the Liberals form government, uh, he would uh, set basically all transit fares in the province. That's both the provincially operated transit services like GO or Ontario Northland, as well as all uh, municipally operated transit services uh, like the TTC in Toronto or OC Transpo in Ottawa uh, to a dollar a fare. a bunch of reasons that he wants to do this. Uh, you know, people have largely, well, not not entirely, but uh, transit ridership still really has not recovered uh, from the pandemic. And so uh, the Liberals see this, A, as a way of, of getting people back onto transit, saving uh, uh, families money uh, in terms of their commuting times, uh, or rather their commuting costs, uh, you know, hopefully saving them gas money. Uh, you know, if, if you're getting on the bus, you're, you're not taking your car as often. Uh, environmentally, they want to, you know, keep cars off of the highway if they can. Uh, and, you know, even in the city of Toronto, right, transit fares are a pretty substantial chunk of people's household budget if you are, uh, you know, a regular commuter, if you're the kind of person who, who buys one of the monthly passes for, you know, a transit service. I mean, uh, Del Duca says that the Liberals would set it to $40 a month. That's $100 a month savings uh, for uh, a monthly pass in Toronto, for example. So, you know, it's it's an announcement that uh, I think plays to a bunch of Liberal strengths. They, they have historically 
historically done well in, uh, you know, urban ridings with like really high transit ridership. And this is one way of trying to to win those back. Uh, but as you alluded to, it's also a, a, a bit of a dig at the Tories. Uh, you know, instead of buck a beer, uh, the, the liberals are talking about buck a ride. Or of course, as Stephen Del Duca said with a bit of, you know, uh, I guess it's not alliteration exactly, but uh, buck a ride province wide is what uh, the liberals really want to call it. So uh, certainly got them a, a lot of uh, media coverage uh, at the start of the campaign. And it's it's that kind of coverage that they want to parlay into, uh, you know, more coverage and more momentum going forward. And Erin Kelly confirms on the agenda tonight that, uh, remember, she's got this thing called Polly, this artificial intelligence algorithm, which not only takes into account traditional polling methods, but also looks online to see what's happening on social media. And apparently the Bucca ride has been a real winner for the liberals on social media. One of the things that you and I are going to do during the course of this campaign, though, is take these policy pronouncements that the parties make and then, you know, put them through the, the critical lens of, of the strengths and the weaknesses. Uh, the strength of this Bucca ride is that it's simple, it's comprehensible, it's got a lot of traction early in the campaign. Uh, perhaps the downside, however, is that it's a two-year plan and one has to ask whether the Liberals have really thought through what happens in year three. Once you subsidize transit riders to the tune of 700 million bucks in the first year and maybe a billion dollars in the second year, what happens in year three? Do the do the fares go back up to what they once were? And can you imagine any government allowing that to happen? So the issues of whether the thing's been really thoroughly thought through, I think, are there. Right. And, you know... Uh it's it's kind of a funny position we are in at the moment where uh you know even the conservative party's uh, uh position on public transit is to spend just you know sums that would have been unimaginable even a few years ago uh, on transit building. Uh, the Liberals want to, uh, you know, massively subsidize fares. Uh, the NDP and the Greens also have proposals to to substantially uh, subsidize the operations of transit and not just the building of it. And yet, <laughs> when the Liberal announcement came out, of course, I follow many uh, transit advocates on Twitter, and many of them were just, you know, so miserable in the sense of, you know, it, it, this did not meet what they thought uh, transit needed, right? And everybody always has their, you know, their imagined idea of what the the proper transit policy should be. So, you know, I, I think one of the the fair criticisms of this liberal policy is that uh, this will be enormously expensive for transit operators, uh, even if the, uh, the the province does replace a lot of the the revenue that the fare box uh, is, is, or that is going to not be coming in from the fare box, you know what happens when if this succeeds, right? If this succeeds as the liberals want to, you know, uh, are we not just going to just absolutely pack buses and subways? Uh, are, are they going to be even more crowded than they were pre-pandemic? And like, if you had to ride the subway in Toronto pre-pandemic, it wasn't always a treat. So, you know, one of the, the fair criticisms, I think, is that this doesn't necessarily set up the transit operators for, you know, long-term stability, uh, as you've alluded to. It's just really a two-year plan. And, you know, the NDP have said their solution uh, that they've backed for many election cycles now of, of restoring a, a permanent 50% operator operating subsidy that used to exist under before the the Harris government was elected, uh, they would just restore that and and give uh, transit operators a, a much more stable financial footing. Uh, obviously, all of this is going to continue being argued over in the days to come. Well, the downside of that plan, while 50% transit operating system subsidies sound terrific, uh, the reality is 
I think it's not quite as sexy as saying buck a ride, right? Everybody gets what that means right away. So the NDP, yeah. I think, is feeling somewhat miffed about the fact that the liberals, you know, you could argue, or Johnny come lately's on this issue here. The Greens were out there uh, many months ago pro- proposing half fare rates uh, for um, uh, for three months uh, in order to give people a break and get them back on, on uh, transit. Stephen Del Duca this morning said, um, or I, was it this morning? Yeah, I think it was this morning, said, um, look, if we get all these cars off the highways and, uh, you know, the <laughs> the subways are packed and the streetcars are packed, uh, let's have a party. That's a good problem <laughs> to have, you know, and it means uh, we'll, we'll get to our climate change goals faster and on and on and on. Uh, speaking of which, why don't we go there right now? Because the liberals also have an idea out there to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2030. That's not much time with an idea towards getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, they got some ideas on how they're going to get there. You want to share? Yeah. Uh, one of the big ones is uh, they want to ban new natural gas power plants uh, in Ontario. Uh, this is a bit of a, an ongoing controversy in that uh, because of the work that's being done on Ontario's nuclear power plants over the next uh, decade or so, uh, there's going to be a period where Ontario's electricity system uh, burns a lot more natural gas and uh, you know emissions from electricity, which of course went down very, very quickly after uh, the Liberal government closed uh, all of the coal-fired power plants, uh, those emissions are going to start coming up uh, a little bit relative to where they were in the 90s. Um, the uh, the Liberals are also proposing to eliminate connection fees for uh, rooftop solar charge air panels so that if you know a homeowner wants to put uh, a solar uh, PV panel on their rooftop, uh, it will be uh, free to do so. Uh, they want to expand the Green Belt. Of course, the Green Belt, uh, an extremely popular uh, Liberal policy policy. Maybe I, I have joked before between the Green Belt and Full Day Kindergarten, those are like the last two uh, policies of the McGuinty and Wynn years that are still uniformly very popular with voters. Uh, the Liberals are also proposing to plant 100 million trees uh, a year over the next eight years, uh, and they want to provide grants and interest-free loans to uh, retrofit homes and buildings. Uh, you know, One of the big challenges going forward is, is how do we get uh, fossil fuel use uh, generally uh, for you know heating homes, that kind of thing. Uh, how do we get that out of the uh, homes and buildings and offices that people live and work in? Uh, grants and, and loans to help people refit their homes, always very popular. Now, we should say here as well that the Green Party thinks they don't have to take a backseat to anybody in yes. terms of environmental policy. That is the name of the party after all. And the Greens have been out there, uh, well, for, frankly, for 35 years in Ontario elections, uh, being at the forefront of, of uh, environmental policy ideas. The NDP, uh, quite a long time ago, actually, during uh, the past few years, uh, proposed their uh, Green New Deal, uh, which incorporates uh, many of the same ideas. I think it's fair to say, and you can give me some detail on this if you want, I think it's fair to say that the three so-called progressive parties uh, are all kind of championing the same kinds of ideas as it relates to improving the environment. We, we should note that the environment is really not a big vote getter right now. When you ask people what they're concerned about, it's inflation, it's affordability. The environment is so far down the list right now. It's not, I mean, it isn't funny. It's so far down the list right now. And, and I think it's also, I think objective observers would say that the progressive conservatives have the least to say about the environment. They certainly had precious little to say about it in the budget. And uh, and if they get reelected on June the 2nd, it's not going to be because they had the best environmental policies going forward. Uh, they're sort of being outspent and out by all the other parties on this. 
No, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, the liberals, we've just talked about their environment plan. Uh, there are other uh, issues that I think they, they will want to talk more about in the campaign. You mentioned, you know, affordability. So uh, the liberals have not yet brought forward uh, a housing plan. Uh, I'm told, because I keep asking, <laughs> uh, I'm told that one is forthcoming. Uh, but, you know, there is a uh, an order to which uh, political parties want to talk about uh, their, their preferred issues. And one of the things that the liberals are doing right now uh, is still really, um, you know, introducing Stephen Del Duca to voters. And so uh, that's part of what they're doing with the whole buck a ride thing is, uh, you know, give the voters uh, a, a relatively simple, one might even say simplistic uh, policy uh, and, and and associate it with their leader, you know, get his name out, get his face out, get him on the news, get it to the point where voters, when they see you know, Stephen Del Duca's face on, you know, CP24 in a dentist office with the sound off, uh, <laughs> they can at least recognize him and say, oh, yeah, that's the liberal leader. Because, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say at the moment, that's not really uh, where the median voter in Ontario is right now. Stephen Del Duca is still a relative unknown. Um, but as he, they get his face out, as they get some of these um, easier to sell issues out, uh, they are going to bring the, uh, the, the the more detailed policy ideas, the things like the housing policy, uh, more cost of living ideas out. Uh, after they've sort of laid the groundwork, then they're going to do the, the, the stuff that's maybe not uh, more complicated than the bumper sticker, let's say. While the liberals were putting out their idea for buck a ride, the New Democrats were trying to put some more meat on the bone of their idea of increasing the number of nurses who are working in this province. We well know that a lot of nurses have decided to leave the field over the past year because of uh, past couple of years, actually, because of COVID-19. They are stressed. They are overworked. Um, the government is trying to pay them uh, lump sum bonuses to keep them on the job. The NDP says uh, they've got a plan to create 30,000 new nurses in the province of Ontario. And a big way to get there, they say, is to recognize the credentials of foreign trained nurses, which heretofore, uh, for whatever reason, uh, has not been done in any significant way in the province of Ontario. What are the likelihood of that being able to happen? Well, you know, if the NDP were to form a majority, uh, you know, uh, regulatory colleges are controlled by the provincial government. I mean, they are kept at arm's length for, you know, usually very good reasons. You don't want the provincial government interfering in, you know, the, the, the micro qualifications of doctors and surgeons, because doctors and surgeons are very specialized, that kind of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, if the if a majority in the legislature want to vote for a bill that, uh, you know, makes it easier to credential foreign nurses, then the college is going to have to do that. Um, you know, obviously, there's a pretty substantial number of ifs between here and there. Um, you know, the, the NDP target is to uh, credential 15,000 internationally educated nurses who, you know, they, they are here and live in Ontario already for the most part. And so this is about recognizing the credentials of people who, who are here and who want to work in the healthcare sector. Uh, you know, that 
it doesn't seem like it should be that hard a lift for the government. But of course, uh, you know, the nurses as a, a collective body, you know, nurses unions, the nurses college, uh, they also have their preferences. And the idea of uh, suddenly uh, credentialing 15,000 people who, uh, to be blunt, are going to be, you know, competing for jobs in a healthcare sector that as much as, you know, everybody agrees that we need to spend more money to expand the healthcare sector, until those the the spaces for those uh, workers exist, uh, suddenly credentialing fifteen thousand people means more intense competition uh, for those jobs, and you could see how for some uh, workers, for some uh, nurses groups, that's a bit of a mixed blessing. Well, again, let's do strengths and weaknesses. You've just talked about the strength of this policy. We could get a lot more nurses on the job when we need them uh, because of all the difficulties surrounding COVID nineteen. Um, This is something that a lot of the politicians don't want to talk about uh, because uh, it's tricky. But there is the reality that a lot of nurses who have been trained in other countries have not been trained to the same standards as those who are trained in the province of Ontario. And it's not just turf protection that prevents uh, nursing associations or, frankly, this works for doctors as well, the Ontario Medical Association. It's not just turf protection, uh, which has them in some cases opposing credentializing foreign trained doctors or nurses in the province of Ontario, it's got to do with the issue of whether or not they have been trained to the same high standard as nurses or doctors in the province of Ontario. If they haven't been, do you want them running around in your hospitals or doctor's offices, you know, performing the work of healthcare? That is a fair question to ask, but of course, not too many people want to ask it right now because it's a bit tricky. No, it is a bit tricky. And, uh, you know, I think one of the uh, other elements of the NDP plan is is to, uh, you know, create job positions in which, uh, you know, internationally trained nurses would, uh, you know, effectively... Um, uh, it would almost be like a co-op placement that, you know, they, they would be working with a, a supervisor, uh, you know, to, to ensure exactly that, that, you know, j- that if we're going to recognize their credentials, we're also going to get some sense of, you know, th- that they can, in fact, operate in uh, a- an Ontario hospital, uh, you know, and, and it's it's not just a, a paperwork, you know, checking boxes. Um, you know, it is a really, really touchy issue. And, and so much of healthcare is, I mean, you know, one of these other issues that comes up perennially is, you know, allowing nurses to do uh, more of the work that is currently reserved for doctors. And it's exactly the same issue of, you know, you could save costs by letting, uh, you know, nurses do some of the procedures that we currently reserve for doctors, but people, uh, not unreasonably, uh, you know, the first priority is always patient safety and patient health. And, and you don't necessarily uh, make people feel comfortable by saying, oh, yeah, that thing that is normally done by a doctor, we're going to let a nurse do it today. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you a question that I suspect you have not been asked before. And that is, have you ever been in a situation where you've got $10 billion burning a hole in your pocket? (laughs) No, no, I've never had that fortune. (laughs) I kind of thought that would be your answer. But the the 10 billion figure I didn't just pluck out of thin air. There is a reason, a method to my madness here. And that is, Premier Ford was in Brampton this morning, and while he didn't acknowledge that it would cost $10 billion to build Highway 413 across the top of the GTA, uh, that seems to be a number that a lot of people are comfortable using right now. The Premier is not using any number in particular right now in terms of the cost of the thing, because he says if you're going to put something out for tender, you certainly don't want to tell uh, prospective uh, bidders how much you've got available to give to them. Uh, You want them to come in with their lowest number. But a lot of people are using 10 billion right now, so let's stick with that. 
Premier Ford wants to spend that $10 billion building the highway across the top of the GTA, the 413. Already, the opposition parties have said, forget it. We would not build that highway if we were in power. We'd take that $10 billion. And in the case of the Liberals this morning, who were in Etobicoke, Doug Ford's backyard, Stephen Del Duca said, I'd put it towards building 200 new schools and repairing or renovating 4,500 others. That's one of the ideas that's out there. You heard any others? Well, of course, uh, the Green Party uh, just flat out doesn't want to build the 413 at all. Uh, and they, you know, have other ideas of what they could spend the $10 billion on, uh, you know, uh, different environmental priorities, things like uh, protected bike lanes, better uh, transit spending. Uh, the New Democrats uh, also uh, have, have opposed building uh, the 413. Uh, you know, I, transit tends to be one of the big ones that can, uh, you know, soak up that kind of a large sum. Uh but, uh, you know, to, to repeat myself slightly, I mean, the the Tories are also proposing to spend just really, really huge sums on transit. So it, it does make it slightly difficult to say, you know, oh, well, we're not going to uh, spend that money on uh, this big highway because, you know, the, the traditional response of uh, progressive parties was to say, well, we're, we're going to spend less on highways and more on transit. And Doug Ford is saying, well, actually, we're just going to spend a lot on everything. <laughs> so in one sense, you know, Del Duca's uh, announcement this morning, which is a, sort of a re-announcement of a prior commitment, uh, is, you know, they're modifying the, the pitch slightly. Well, instead of, you know, not on highways, on transit instead, they've now moved down the priority spending list to schools. And OK, well, not on highways. We're going to spend it on schools instead. You know, back in the day, and I'm going to take you back, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, and 40 years, political parties during election campaigns used to have multiple events a day. And then for whatever reason, in the last five or 10 years, it has become the custom, both federally and provincially, for leaders to do fewer events. And to be sure, during COVID, uh, oftentimes they did one event a day or none. Uh, but in the main, it was one event a day. Well, I think admittedly we're in early days here, but one of the things that has really surprised me, JMM, is that the leaders are doing a lot of events already. Stephen Del Duca's schedule, the leader of the Liberal Party, he's been doing four and five events a day. Uh, I know that Andrea Horvath had started with just one or two, but today she's got a whole bunch of events going. Tomorrow she's going to be in Scarborough for, I think, four or five events that day. Uh, Doug Ford has not done a lot of events so far because he's been holding off uh, in anticipation of tonight. Big rally tonight. Give us some deets on that. Uh, well, you know, the the Tories are holding a big rally at the uh, Toronto Congress Centre. Uh, this is out in Etobicoke North, right? Um, they, you know, this is a, a place where... Uh, Doug Ford has held uh, numerous uh, events in the past. Uh, he he likes the space. He he likes the big rally environment as well. Um, at least he certainly did pre-COVID. Um, and so you know, I, I think we can expect this to be you know a, a pretty big kickoff event. Uh, you know, we'll get a speech from uh, Doug Ford, and uh, you know, he, he the the Tories haven't done a lot of work with with the leader of the party setting out the uh, the the, the the narrative of the campaign, if I can put it that way. We had the budget speech, but of course the budget speech is delivered by the finance minister, not uh, the premier. And so now we'll get uh, the the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party uh, really starting to 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 put the, the message of their campaign out uh, to, in, to the public in a big way. I think one thing we're going to find out tonight is that uh, whoever shows up to the Toronto Congress Centre for that PC party rally, 
they are clearly not fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs because anybody who's a Leaf fan <laughs> will be staying home watching it on TV tonight as, I, I'm sorry, Premier Ford, as I am. I'm not going to your rally tonight. I'm staying home to watch the hockey game. Uh, anyway, okay, moving right along. You, you mentioned the budget just a second ago, and let me pick up on that because um, we didn't get a chance to talk about the fact last week because the budget was read by Peter Bethlen Falvey, the finance minister, but then the House was, you know, the House broke for the summer and there was no budget debate. So can you actually tell me, I know you hinted at this last week, do we have a budget now technically or don't we have a budget because the budget wasn't debated or passed? So the province of Ontario does not have a budget right now for, for the fiscal year of 2022 to 2023. Uh, uh, what we have instead is what's called interim spending authority. Last fall, the Tories passed a, a bill, and this is a, a pretty routine piece of business, uh, that gives the government the authority to keep spending money um, after the the formal start of the new fiscal year on April 1st. Basically a bit of a stopgap. I think it's about $160 billion they're allowed to spend, which is not the, the full balance of the budget that was uh, presented last week. So um, in theory, uh, actually, they do not need to bring the House back uh, until September, at, at which point they could bring a new budget back and or they could just wait for the the fall economic statement uh in practice my sense is that they would want to uh bring the MPPs back for a very short summer session pass this budget uh and then you know break until the fall of this course, is assuming that, Ford wins. That is indeed uh, pr- presuming that the Tories uh, are re-elected with a majority uh, and uh, they they you know, get to to bring this budget back. Uh, of course, there was a little bit of a diciness there for uh, about a, an hour or two after the the budget was introduced, because uh, Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey did not initially commit to reintroduce this budget as is, you know, word for word, so to speak, uh, if the Tories are reelected, and that caused a bit of a a hubbub. And then the Premier's office did send out a statement saying, "This budget will be what we reintroduce. No ifs, ands, or buts." Right. Let's talk some identity politics here on this first full day of the campaign. Uh, this is not really a big feature of Tory campaigns, uh, but it is for Liberal and New Democrat and uh, to a certain extent, Green campaigns as well. And I note that the NDP put out uh, a press release uh, earlier today with a very detailed list of who is running for their party in the 124 ridings across the province. And they have said, for example, women and non-binary people make up 55% of their candidates. Racialized candidates are 33%. People of color, 26%. I'm not quite sure how those two things are different, but anyway. Uh, Two-spirit LGBTQ um, plus candidates, 12%. Black candidates, 7%. People with disabilities make up 7% of the NDP candidates. Youth candidates, 6%. Francophone, 4%. Indigenous candidates, 3%. And overall, the NDP says 80% of all of their candidates belong to one or more so-called equity-deserving community. So I don't know that there's a question emerging from this. I know the liberals have said, John Michael, that they, you know, they're very proud to have more than half of their candidates being female for the first time ever. Is this important as people consider who to vote for? Uh, Obviously, some parties think they do. Other parties don't think so at all. Yeah, I, 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 
I'm not quite sure what to say about this because, I, as you say, like I, I don't think there is somebody out there who is uh, a leaning conservative voter, but is you know turned off because they they uh, don't have enough uh, people of color in their their candidates or in their caucus uh, as it existed before yesterday. Um, you know, for the NDP, though, I mean, this is an important uh, issue uh, for not just the NDP, but for progressives generally. Um, and, you know, it matters who parties recruit. And so I do think, you know, for the NDP to to say this and to, to do the work of uh, recruiting these uh, candidates um, and, and, you know, finding these different diverse groups to to draw talent from, uh, it, you know, it's notable, it's important. Uh, and I think it's uh, it is distinct, certainly from uh, what uh, the, the the Tories have done. And, you know, the liberals, as we've mentioned, you know, they, they have uh, tried to get uh, 50% of their candidates uh, to be uh, uh, women, which uh, that target has met. They haven't, I believe, met their target on young candidates last no, I heard. They, though they were I going for 30 under 30, and they only have 11 at the moment. Right. So, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily think any of this is going to to change uh, a lot of votes, but I think it's notable, and I think, you know, it's, it's even praiseworthy in this context. Let's do one more item here. And of course, uh, everything that happens south of the border seems to have an impact on what happens here. And even though the Supreme Court of the United States has not formally released its ruling on what is expected to be an overturning of a nearly half-century-old decision on abortion, namely Roe versus Wade, uh, there was a draft that emerged, and uh, politicians in Canada, even those running for office in the middle of an election campaign, are expected to comment on whether it will have an impact on things here. What are you hearing, John Michael? Uh, so... The day after that uh, uh, draft opinion leaked, uh, all three opposition parties uh, put out statements basically saying they support a woman's right to choose and, uh, you know, criticizing the the Tories uh, for having members of their caucus who have been endorsed by uh, anti-abortion groups. Uh, I think most prominent in some people's minds is, is Sam Oosterhof, the uh, relatively young Tory MPP uh, who... Uh, in a speech at front of Queen's Park said he wanted to make uh, abortion unthinkable uh, in uh, this generation. Um, Doug Ford then came out uh, this morning and said that, uh, you know, a, a progressive conservative government, a re-elected progressive conservative government uh, will not reopen uh, the abortion issue, uh, you know, under any circumstances. Um, you know, it's, it's, an easy uh, issue for parties to, to you know, uh, hit the Tories with and for the Tories to say, like, we're not going to touch it. You know, I, I think where things get a bit uh, more difficult, or at least where I think we should try to make things more difficult for uh, all party leaders is, uh, you know, on some some fussier detail stuff. Um, and, I, and I think of there was a school in uh, Woodstock, Ontario, a Catholic school where uh, students were uh, made to participate in a, a contest to do, uh, you know, uh, anti-abortion protest uh, art and this was part of a this was a graded assignment um, this was in the news a few weeks ago uh, and so I asked uh, Stephen del Duca this morning whether uh, a liberal government would uh, put a stop to these kinds of uh, activities in Catholic schools because this is not even close to the first time something like this has happened uh, in a, a Catholic school in Ontario uh, he says yes uh, an Ontario government uh, led by the Liberals would uh, put a stop to that uh, I asked uh, Mike Schreiner similarly, 
whether uh, you know he would put a stop to that if if uh, you know if if the Greens uh, held power. Uh, he also said yes. Uh, interestingly, uh, you know, uh, this is sort of a side note, but uh, the Greens have historically supported disestablishing the Catholic boards in Ontario. Uh, Schreiner says that will not be part of their platform this time around uh, because it's been so disruptive for Ontario schools in the last four years, and particularly with COVID, uh, that. Uh, he just doesn't want to add to the disruption going forward. And that is it for day one. We are here every weekday during the 43rd provincial general election campaign. Uh, this one was a little longer today, JMM, because we had a lot to talk about uh, kicking off this uh, 43rd general election campaign. It will be a little shorter in days to come. But in the meantime, we'll see you on the hustings tomorrow. Steve, may the fourth be with you. <laughs> now, you know, you and I being Star Wars geeks, we understand that. But you and I also being Queen's Park geeks, we need to add another thing. And that is that May the 4th is not just the Star Wars Day. It is also today, the 49th anniversary of former Premier Leslie Frost's death. Leslie Frost is the guy who brought in the provincial sales tax. They called it the Frost Bite. That was a cute name for it. And he's the last Premier to win three straight majority governments, which he did in the 1950s. So may the 4th be with you. And let's remember Leslie Frost today. How's that? Man, I just cannot compete with you. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.